all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls this hour about any kind of uh, topic that you might have that's related to your health care, the health care of someone in your family or maybe even a friend. If you're not able to call us this morning, you can always send us an email. Send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a wonderful Wednesday morning. A little bit of cloud cover this week. Sure does feel a lot better, at least to me. Still muggy, though. But at least we don't have those uh, just intolerable uh, uh, you know, rays from the sun right now in a typical August as we sort of move into it. Um, but uh, lots of health care issues that come along with that. We've been at least trying to touch on that most programs at least once just because it's so prevalent here in the state um, saw a patient of mine uh, the other day who's having a little bit of problems due to uh, being outside in the sun. So it certainly can cause dehydration. It can cause kidney injury. Uh, it could put stress on your organs. And if you already have a lot of chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, it could certainly uh, make those worse and have a lot of bad outcomes from that, stroke, heart attack, and I mentioned uh, kidney uh, kidney injury as well. So be careful out there. Try to limit your time to those cooler times of the day. I know I've been getting up a little bit earlier lately, and it certainly feels pretty good when you get up at around 5 o'clock or so uh, to, to about until about uh, 8.30 or 9. But um, just want to be careful out there. Make sure you prehydrate too. Don't wait till you feel like you're thirsty if you're going to be out, particularly this time of year. Uh, water is probably the best way to do that beforehand. A lot of people will drink a Gatorade or something like that. Just make sure that you, uh, you know, think about how much sugar you're getting in there. If you have uh, problems like diabetes, you might want to check with your physician about what's best. But all that to say, take care of yourself uh, when you're going outside and think about all the other medical conditions that you might have. We're going to go to our first caller, David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Thanks for calling. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I got a question I want to ask you. It was just reported this this morning on the news, and I'm a little fuzzy about the exact specific details, but it has to do with the medical marijuana from uh, uneducated layman that I am. I think the the problem was the uh, the the potency of the strength was not what was labeled on the bottle, a mismatch or whatnot. I want to ask a question about that. And then also, is there any dangers of any type of drug interreactions or food interreactions that, with uh, medical marijuana or the CBD oil? Yeah, great questions on both of those. So, you know, the standardization is a big component of this. And even in states that had CBD oil, uh, this was another, you know, the same kind of issue there. Um, that um, it's not 
specifically standardized in the same way that you would say get a medication that has a known amount of an active chemical in it. And there can be pretty wide variations of that. Now, the way I understand it is the processing of this will be set up that there is some standardization in the production of uh, the uh, THC, which is the active compound there. Um, But in the dispensaries, depending on a number of factors, which include not just what the potency is and what you're getting, but also how are you taking that? Is it an edible? Is it something that you would smoke? What's the delivery method? Um, All of those things can change how much of the active chemical that you're getting. And your medical conditions may be a factor there, too. And this is one of those areas where we just we know we don't have a lot of information to know what's the safest way to do that or to control for it. And then the other thing, you know, as far as um, uh, interactions, yeah, uh, just because, you know, it's marijuana um, or THC doesn't mean that it doesn't have interactions with other medications. So there are a lot of other medications that uh, have the potential to interact with it if you're if you're using it or taking it. So you want to be aware of that. And if you, you know, there's two people that are going to know that. I, the person at the dispensary, where if you have a, you know, if you have a medical marijuana card, once you get to that point, and you've been certified by a physician, to who's had the training, uh, and is certified to do that, they can certify you that you would qualify to use medical marijuana. Then you go to the dispensary, and then they would dispense it to you. So it's not really like the same way we have things set up, like a prescription. But um, even then, um, you know, there are a lot of those side effects that you may want to discuss either with your physician or with a pharmacist, um, and hopefully they've already done that. I know I've started doing that on my patients that I ask, hey, are you taking anything, you know, are you planning on doing this? Um, and then if you are, I'll run it through a database to see because there's a lot of medications that do have interactions. Your pharmacist can do that too, and that's a good idea for any kind of um, even any kind of over-the-counter medication or herbal remedy. I was talking with our pharmacist, our clinical pharmacist, Dr. Fon, in our clinic um, Tuesday, and you know we had uh, a situation where we uh, were talking about different things that could interact with a, a medication called Plavix, which is commonly used in situations where you want to thin out the blood a little bit. Um, and uh, that can be coronary artery disease if the patient's had a stent, or if they've had peripheral vascular disease to help prevent uh, a second heart attack or a stroke. Sometimes that drug is used. And there's a lot of other medications. There's a lot of herbal supplements. Ginkgo is an example of that. Um, That if you take that, even in small amounts, it could have a big effect on how that works on your platelets and can even have a, a greater risk of bleeding. So that's just one example. But I would check if you're, you know, planning on doing that, I would certainly check with your pharmacist or with your physician or both to say, you know, just ask those questions. Is, do you think this is going to interact with any of the medications? And there's a couple of different databases that can put that in. One more question real quick. Uh, is, do you know of any dangers of vaping or using an e-cigarette and using mar- medical marijuana? Is there like a combination? I mean, uh, uh, if you inhale it, uh, what benefit you're getting seem like to me would be counterproductive by the increase of lung cancer or lung disease. Yeah, so there the how again, how you deliver it does you do have to think about that. So it is you can deliver very 
potent amounts through the lungs. It's not really a delivery method that um, is designed to do that. In other words, your lung tissue, it was never designed to really handle those kinds of chemicals across those membranes. So you're delivering it almost directly to the bloodstream in a way that doesn't process it. In other words, it doesn't process it through the GI tract. So um, you also have to think about how vaping works. So particularly some of the vapes, um, you know, they, they deliver the, the water vapor at a high temperature because you have to, you know, you have to have uh, develop that. So basically they're heating it up in upwards of like 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can have a thermal injury to the lung tissue, and that's what a lot of people have seen, even with just normal vaping, is it's not necessarily the chemical although a lot of the oils tend to and and you know cannabis is one of those that you have to sort of be careful with but it a lot of those oils when you heat them up they can do more damage to the tissues directly so there's a lot of thermal injury to the lung you know as far as cancer goes there's not really any studies looking at that that have shown that that there's an increased risk of cancer in the way that we you know that you see with cigarette smoke but you certainly can damage your lungs with it so Again, that may be something that you talk to your physician if you're thinking about medical marijuana to say, do you think this this would be something that I could do through, uh, you know, a vaping or something that's similar to that? A lot of people will call them just the little pins uh, that they that they deliver that with. So just something to keep in mind uh, if you're thinking about that and you may want to go with a different method of delivery. All right, thank you. Sure. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you might be interested in. Maybe it's a new side effect or a symptom that you're having from something and just haven't quite figured it out and you want to get uh, get our way in on that. We are glad to do that. You know, a lot of people are uh, able to listen to us every Wednesday at 11, but you may not. So how can you, if you're just uh, you know listening for the first time or if you're um, maybe you just caught half of a program or a little bit of it and you want to hear the rest of it, archive programs are available online. So you can go to uh, MPB online and just search for Southern Remedy. You can find those. Or if you'd like to uh, use your um, whatever your preferred podcasting app is, just search for Southern Remedy, again, MPB Think Radio, and you can subscribe to that and hear it at your convenience. We would love to bring this uh, great content that we have that's mainly driven by you, our listeners, who call in with some great questions that are applicable to a lot of people. So keep them coming and keep listening. We're going to go to Rachel from Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good. So I am wondering what the current status of COVID is right now in Mississippi and what kind of precautions should we be taking? Sure. Uh, a good place to look for that information is the uh, State, State Department of Health, who is still tracking those uh, cases of COVID. So I am actually going to pull it up right now. I didn't look at it this morning. So as of today, as or actually as of August 8th, these are reported in uh, weekly uh, there were um, a thousand new cases, and those, keep in mind, are reported cases. Um, and uh, and uh, you, you know, thinking about that, there's a lot of people who test at home, and those obviously would not be reported to the 
health department. So these are just the reported cases. So those numbers are probably higher than that. Uh, as you probably know, the variant that we're looking at right now is one of the Omicron variants. So uh, although it is much more contagious, it's easier to contract from somebody else. It is um, much less uh, has much less uh, negative side effects and and all the nasty things that come with getting COVID. However, if you're older, if you have risk factors which are chronic diseases, if you're immunosuppressed from uh, something, if you're getting treated for cancer, for instance, or an autoimmune disease, you are at a higher risk. And the things that are protective are the things that you know we've, the same kind of things we've been talking about for a long time with COVID. Immunization does help. Previous infection does help. Uh, if you've had it in the past and, and been immunized, then those are really good combinations there. Um, a lot of people have been asking, do I need to wait more than four or five months before I get the uh, latest you know, booster shot if I qualify for it, or do I need to wait for one of these combined vaccines? I've been telling my patients, if you're at a higher risk, go ahead and get it. Um, when those other vaccines come out, you probably need to consider doing those too. But um, if you know somebody who has symptoms, you know, staying away from them is probably the best thing. Wearing a mask in areas that you know you're going to be exposed to a lot of people, airports, travel um, uh, across different ways. I can tell you what I do if I'm in a crowded place right now. Um, I'm just uh, masking up. Not so much to, you know, I'm thinking about other people. If I get COVID, I don't want to give it to anybody else, and certainly I'm out of work for at least five days. Um, so those kinds of things, you know, sort of play into my mind. But there's a fairly large amount of it circulating, causing less damage, but still at risk for a number of individuals. So if you're in that higher risk group, I would say if you're around a lot of, you know, people that you're not normally around, I would um, – I would uh, just be careful and wear a mask, but um, uh, otherwise I'd, I'd try to protect yourself as much with uh, getting vaccinated. Um, I have a friend who has asked me to take a day-long um, road trip, and she mm -hmm. has just gotten over COVID, and she works in a hospital, and uh, she is actually hard of hearing, so I hate to wear a mask while we're because it'll be hard for her to understand what I'm saying. But uh, if she's in a if she's vehicle, yeah, if she's got uh -huh. if she's over it right now, um, and her you know physician or has said that she can go around without a mask, you should be fine. Um, uh -huh. That's that's you know she she and now there are some circumstances like for instance if if she's immunocompromised if she is on medications that are keeping her immune system down or she's got a chronic, you know, uh, immunosuppressive therapy, like a kidney transplant would be a good example, then it is possible that those individuals can transmit the virus up to 20 days after having it, even if their symptoms have gone away. But if she's huh. not, you know, if she's fairly healthy, um, you know, after that 10-day period, you should be fine to, you know, go around with her and in that situation, uh -huh. you shouldn't have to wear a mask. Uh -huh. How long does it take uh, for COVID to present in in an individual? If she works so in the hospital, uh, should I ask her to get tested before we go on our trip? I probably wouldn't just because she's just had, I mean, uh, by what you just said, if I understood that right, she's had COVID and she's 
gotten over it recently, correct? Uh-huh. Correct. Yeah, so I... So there's no reason for her to retest, um, you know, even if, if, as long as she doesn't have those symptoms, she's 10 days out from uh, from her, you know, when her infection started or when her first positive test was, um, then she should be fine if she doesn't have all of those other health re, uh, health risks and um, if she's not immunocompromised. So I think you should be pretty safe to to go on the trip where they're actually probably more safe than you know some other people who've um, who who have been exposed. So I don't know that I would I, know, I wouldn't personally ask her to retest if she's out of that ten day window. So one more question related. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of going to a pottery class and we'll be around a table. I don't know how many people there will be. Uh, should I mask in that situation? Yeah, if you're if you're going to be around a lot of people and you don't know, you know, sort of what they're doing or where they've been, that wouldn't be such a bad idea. Particularly if you're uh, if you're older and if you have, you know, one or two of the risk factors, and those can be things like obesity, hypertension, diabetes. Um, uh-huh. In that situation, if it were me, I probably would would mask up in a situation like that. Okay. Thank you very much, Doctor. Have yes, ma'am. Day. You too. Thank you for calling. Always good questions from our listeners. <clears throat> you know, speaking of viruses, I got a, a question earlier uh, by a mom that was asking some questions about diarrhea. And, um, you know, after, you know, kid, diarrhea is very common in kids and fairly common in, in particularly in younger adults. But in kids in particular, if they're around other kids in daycare, school situations, it's pretty easy to transmit uh, lots of different things that cause diarrhea. And most of the time, if it's a situation where they have multiple loose loose stools a day for a number of days, um, there's a couple of different things that we do uh, to try to figure out, you know, sort of what's going on. The most common causes of that are tend to be viral infections that are self-limiting. In other words, they go away by themselves. They don't require any uh, medication. As long as the, we don't like to give a lot of medications that slow down uh, a lot of the diarrhea just because it can sometimes cause some secondary problems. So in kids, you know, it's unless your physician has told you to do so, it's probably not a good idea to give antidiarrheal medication to them, particularly younger kids under the age of about 10. Um, but most of those will go away, and most of the time, if they're not vomiting at the same time, I know some kids have both of those going on, if they're not vomiting at the same time and they're keeping down liquids uh, at least, uh, maybe some solids too, then that's usually okay, particularly if they're still making urine while that's going on. And um, the things to work watch out for if they are stop making urine, if they're uh, listless and they're just sort of laying around, they're not to their same, you know, activity level. Those are all some red flags that you need to take them in to be seen to by a medical professional. Um, but usually those will go away in a few days, and they may be accompanied by a mild fever. Again, that's the viral infection. Uh, most of the times, the stool itself, you know, people make all kinds of different, um, you know, judgments about different colors in the stool and that kind of thing. The biggest thing that we ask about is blood in the stool. So it, it can look green, it can look watery or brown. All those are, you know, it varies from individual from individual. Uh, blood in the stool, though, may uh, indicate that there is a, a number of things happening. So there are some bacterial infections that can cause diarrhea. 
And sometimes those need to be investigated a little bit further because they can have complications, uh, not just on the dehydration uh, from a dehydration standpoint, but also on the kidneys. Um, if they're eating okay, it's not uh, recommended that you give them clear liquids. I know a lot of people will say, well, my child's got diarrhea. I've been giving them Pedialyte or I've been giving them clear liquids and they still got diarrhea. Well, if they're eating okay, you can give them the same types of foods that they were eating beforehand with the exception of uh, dairy products. So dairy products, while you have diarrhea and while you're recovering, it's a little bit hard for your body to digest that lactose, which is the main sugar in milk products. So that's one that I would sort of shy away from. Obviously, there's a lot, you know, that, uh, you know, if you if you have a younger child with that's on formula or on breast milk, that's not something that you would need to change. But uh, in older kids, that's one of the things that I would shy away from. But there's no need um, to give them clears. It's just going to make that they're still going to have diarrhea um, or clear stools after that if you continue to do that. And then as they, you know, as they start to feel better, you can... Uh, you you might want to introduce lots of other heavier foods or, or dairy foods with time. Um, but usually three or four days is about the, the time period where you'd see that uh, to, to get better. But again, if they're not getting better, if they have a high fever, if they don't have good urine output and they're not moving around like they normally would, those are some things that you probably would want to, uh, to bring them in for. But very common, we do see some seasonality. Again, that sort of fits with the viral infections that, would, that they get. Uh, adenoviruses, enteroviruses, all pretty common about causing diarrhea. And certainly they can get it in a daycare situation uh, with other kids around. This is Southern Remedy. We're going to go to David from Silver Creek. Good morning, David. Hey there. We had a, got a perfectly healthy granddaughter. Uh, who started experiencing extreme abdominal pain and just started sleeping all the time and uh, uh, finally got her to the right place. And uh, she's got a, a ruptured appendix. And we just thought, you know, of course, that took us off guard, a five-year-old with, a, with appendicitis. But, but then they said that, uh, that they would keep her in the hospital for like one to two weeks taking antibiotics before they would do that surgery due to the possibility of a, a spread of bacteria i guess but uh anyway it's just a, it's a real difficult situation for us to see her yeah, yeah. a little bit waiting for that time you know and she's hurting and and uh anyway i just thought you know I'd like to get your comment on that but it was, it was all a huge shock to us you know yeah so the appendix uh you know it, we don't really know what the function of it is but it is a little bitty uh cul-de-sac if you think about it that's attached to your large intestine, right where your large intestine starts. So uh, on yourself, it would be the right lower side of your abdomen. So, you know, if you point to your right hip with your hand and go up about a hand's breadth, that's about where it sits. So uh, typically people who have appendicitis, which is really an inflammation of it, so because it's a little blind cul-de-sac, there can be bits of material that gets stuck in there, and of course, there's bacteria in the uh, the large and small the large intestine. Uh, anyway, um, that can you can have an overgrowth of those, and then you can have an infection that sets up. 
and typically that will um, that will present with abdominal pain. Younger kids have a little bit of a hard time localizing where that is. So if you ask a young child around three to five, you know, where do you hurt if they have belly pain? Pain they'll point to their to their belly button. That's the number one place they point to. So it, it may take a little bit more of, of questions. It can present with fever, and usually it just doesn't go away, and it's very uncomfortable when you move around. Um, but uh, there's lots of different ways to image that. Ultrasound is one, CT scan is another, but you sort of have to get the symptoms. Of course, belly pain in kids is very common. Fever is very common in kids, so sometimes you have to sort of see how this progresses over time. Most of the time, it's picked up fairly early, and you can go ahead and do that surgery to take out the appendix. Again, we don't really need that. It's a fairly simple surgery, and particularly in kids or young adults, uh, and then you don't have any problems after that. In some individuals, though, it ruptures. So if the pressure inside of that appendix gets high enough uh, or the infection is bad enough, it'll rupture into the surrounding tissue. And your body does a fairly good job of trying to wall that off and to prevent it from spreading. But once it ruptures, it basically can go anywhere in the abdomen uh, because all of your uh, organs in the abdomen uh, sort of float around in there. And that can be very bad. Um, so this is not uncommon, you know, to have the course uh, IV antibiotics or oral antibiotics if you're if it's not as bad an infection uh, would be the thing to sort of cool that infection off for a time period, and then to go in and take the appendix out and sort of clean out that that um, infected necrotic tissue. Uh, but you can see this, you know, 100 years ago, people uh, you know died of a ruptured appendix. It was uh, one of those things that, you know, if you talk to your grandparents, they probably knew a, a number of people who may have died from a ruptured appendix just because they didn't get the medical care that they needed, particularly before antibiotics were available. Um, there wasn't a lot of things to do besides just to sort of hope that they were going to cool down. And unfortunately, a lot of people were like, well, why don't you just go in and take it out, um, you know, surgically? And it's it's because you really have to, anytime you do surgery on something that's infected already, the healing process really doesn't, it's not optimal for the healing of those tissues, and you can continue to have, uh, um, you know, the infection that sort of spreads to the surrounding tissues that are healthy. So that's, that's pretty much as David um, described it, that is, you know, a very good description of a ruptured appendix and how it sort of presents and um you know it's it can surprise a lot of people but it it happens it still happens in fact i have a good friend of mine that she had she as an adult she had some uh abdominal pain and um really didn't think much of it and just you know kept having the abdominal pain there thought it might be uh an ovary that was sort of twisted uh, but went to the doctor got a ct scan and had ruptured her appendix but had walled it off uh, underwent some antibiotics by mouth for a period of time and then had her appendix out later. So, you know, you can sort of see those things. And, it, you know, it's there's a good many people that after they've ruptured, they've, they've um, you know, their body has fought off the infection. But I wouldn't, you know, if you're having problems with it, go in and see about it because it's something that you don't need to ignore. Doctor, thank you for your comments. You all do a great service on the show, and that, that helps me understand more about the situation. Oh, you're welcome, David, and thanks for calling. That uh, certainly uh, helps a lot of people out there. We appreciate it. 
Let's go to Scott from Jackson. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, uh, I had a question. Um, I'm currently uh, I'm a thyroid patient, and my doctor said my thyroid levels are fine. Um, I did a radioactive biodiam about three years ago, and but lately I've been having a lot of blurred vision and double vision. So my eye doctor referred me to a, a neurologist, and they've um, so far they did my uh, diabetes test, can I find, and now they sent me for a spinal tap and an MRI. But I want to know what could be some causes of that um, double vision and blurred vision. It's not all the time, especially when I'm at home in the house. I have no problem with it, but I notice it's more so at night when driving, like daytime, the sun is reflecting on my face. It's more so then. Sure. Yeah, and and you said to begin with you had hypothyroidism. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Uh Okay, so for I know you know about that, but just to let everybody else know, so hypothyroidism, the thyroid gland is sort of the 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 master metabolism gland of the body, and it sits on both sides of your vocal box in the front of your neck, and it secretes a hormone that helps sort of control the levels of metabolism. And if it, in some instances, for you know a number of reasons, you can not make enough of that hormone, and it needs to be supplemented. Um, now, sometimes the brain, stimu- the, in the normal process of things, the brain stimulates from a, a center called the pituitary gland. It makes some hormones that stimulate other glands, and it makes a, uh, a substance called TSH that stimulates the thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormone. So in some individuals, the reason why they're not producing enough thyroid hormone can be that there's something going on in the pituitary gland in the brain. And it's pretty deep in the brain. It's sort of on the lower side of it. Uh, it sort of hangs down by a little stalk, and it looks almost like, if, you ever, if you're familiar with sweet gum trees, it almost, to me, looks like a little sweet gum ball uh, that's right at the base of the brain. And um, it is right in that area, there are the nerves, the optic nerves that cross through that same area to uh, to transmit light uh, and uh, to the information that you're getting from your eyes back to the brain to see. And um, it can also affect some of the nerves around there. So if you have a problem in the pituitary gland, sometimes that can be manifest by endocrine problems like hypothyroidism, or it can be uh, it can show up as um, eye problems like blurry vision. So my my guess is what they're doing is that both with the spinal tap because that gives them information of the spinal fluid that's around the brain, um, and certain disorders might affect that, which would cause a, a change in your vision. And then the MRI is to get a good look at the brain itself, including that area, the pituitary gland, to see if there's an enlargement there. It, sometimes there are benign tumors that are, you know, that surgically you can you can treat um, that um, you know that will take care of of the problem. But the big the first thing is just trying to figure out what's going on right now. So I don't have enough information to give you a diagnosis, but at least I can tell you, you know, the spinal tap and the MRI. That's the kind of thing that the neurologists are are looking for are those kinds of things to sort of tie together with the blurry vision and maybe even the thyroid problem too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Scott. Thanks for that uh, question. You know, it's it's fascinating the endocrine system 
it's basically these pathways. And uh, sometimes I'll, you know, I'm not an expert in it. Endocrinologists are some of the smartest people I know um, to try try to figure out these things. However, there are, you know, analogies like a river, basically. So there are signals that, uh, you know, that that go downstream to tell things how, where to go. But then there's some feedback loops that if you have enough of things coming downstream, they'll feed back up to the top of the loop uh, to tell it either to decrease some things or to increase some things. And there's lots of things that can go wrong in that. And the thyroid pathway is one of those. Um, and certainly there's a lot of, of things that can go wrong with the pituitary gland that can affect things downstream, not just with the thyroid hormones, but with cortisol and the adrenal glands and what they do, and even some of the tissues that produce some of our sex hormones too, whether you're male or female. So that's all those kinds of things can be manifest in different ways. And once you get to an endocrinologist, though, and uh, or a neurologist, they're really looking at those different things that could uh, cause some problems. So, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of think, well, an endocrinologist, I don't really have any problem with heat intolerance, or I don't have a problem with dry, scaly skin, or uh, uh, this kind of thing. But really, there's a ton of different symptoms that can go along with endocrine problems, and it takes a little bit of time to sort of figure those things out. So uh, they are the experts, though, in, uh, in trying to, uh, to get, get to a diagnosis. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers, as usual, for calling in with their questions. You can reach us by emailing remedy at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy has been produced by Mississippi Public Broadcasting and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.